Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Please be seated. Teacher, can you help me make sense of it all? I, I know, I realize that today's gospel uh, is a little bit adversarial. And that when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, tell me, what is your favorite commandment? Which is the, what's the most important one? That, that they were generally trying to trap him because there's always, there's always a lot of wrong answers that you can step into among that crowd. Uh, but I also have to imagine that when they asked Jesus, which commandment is the greatest? that there had to have been among them at least one or two who, like us, actually wanted to know the answer. One or two might have been thinking, all right, I, I know the law. I, mean, I, under, I know what the words are. I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I, I'm still not quite there yet. Uh, give me something I can use. How many of you all come to church thinking, I really hope the preacher gives us something I can use, right? Yeah, I hope someday the preacher does too. Uh, but, so they, if that, but they were asking, I have so many demands and, and focuses in my life, so many choices and decisions, so many competing values. Jesus, can you give me something that, that helps me to hold it all together. And if that was indeed what maybe even one or two of those Pharisees were actually listening for, then I think that Jesus gave them something pretty valuable. Rather than stepping into the trap of, of which commandment, which, what his favorite commandment was, or even what his favorite school of, of rabbinic thought might have been. I'm sure they all have their favorites as we all have our favorites. Jesus instead responded by capturing the whole tradition in a single phrase. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So thank you, Jesus, for, for saving humanity, but also thank you for putting the message in less than 140 characters so that we can keep up with it just a little bit better. What, what did it mean, though, that he could take hundreds of years of prophecy and tradition and scripture and distill all this down to so few words. Surely there were some among the Pharisees who, who thought that Jesus was narrowing the faith, that he was taking it down a few degrees of sophistication and nuance, and that in meeting people where they were, he, he was actually making it a little bit too easy. Surely this faith, they thought, this faith that was given through Abraham, that we have suffered through many generations to hold on to, surely it can, it's more than just something that can be boiled down to a couple of bumper stickers about love. 
And, and you know, if they were thinking that, they might have been on to something. Faith is hard work. It's wonderful work, but it's not just about thinking good thoughts and, and getting to church once or twice and, and doing the right oblations. It requires something of us. Faith, if this really matters, then it's about how we integrate all the Scripture and the tradition and the practice and the ethical choices, all of this together into how we e weave it into every aspect of our lives. And you see, that's why the Ten Commandments matter so much. It, it takes ten, right? That was the assumption. It's still a pretty good assumption. Ten Commandments, each one in conversation with another, the original algorithm generator creating millions of inter integrations that can deliver wisdom for any situation under the sun. So we should have no problem following it, right? Right. Sometimes, though, simpler is better. Or rather, sometimes what we need is something that is a little bit more elegant. Now, we're, we're in a fine cathedral, and so when I use the word elegant, you may be thinking of something foofy and precious, uh, something like vestments or, or, or Eucharistic vessels or, or even fine place settings at a newcomer brunch later today. We're a little bit more laid back than that. It'll be nice, but maybe not the good china this time. I'd be willing to bet that you have never once thought of Jesus as elegant. Well, and if we're thinking of it in those terms, that's probably right. But there's another use of that term. And those of you who, uh, whose life is in the sciences or in engineering know a little of what I'm talking about. An elegant theory or solution to the problem is something that is ingeniously simple and clear. In the natural world, an elegant response is going to be the most direct, the one that encounters the least friction and requires the least expenditure of precious energy. So elegant is not um, an antelope showing up knowing the right uh, fork to use at a dinner. It's, it's knowing uh, instinctively what the fastest path to survival is going to be and avoiding all of those other things that are going to distract them. We are most likely to grow and evolve not through things that are com complicated and unwieldy, but rather through things that are elegant and simply flow. Gil Rendell and Alice Mann wrote a wonderful book on strategic planning processes in churches called Holy Conversations, where they say that church strategic planning uh, should actually be elegant. Elegance requires that that recognizes that there is an economy of attention, of time, and of interest. And for the sake of simplicity and for the sake of us not just getting bogged down in all the many uh, things that are the rabbit holes that our brains want to send at us, 
For the sake of simplicity, we should see, figure out what the clearest and, mo and least complicated path forward might be. If you are faced with an important decision, whether it's a life choice or, or a vote, or, or trying to make sense of news that just has an infinite capacity for complications, and each one of it which takes us not closer to an answer, but rather farther away from any possibility of resolution or reconciliation, sometimes elegance is what we need. Something which answers the moment, but also connects us to the wider story. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question, yes, a little bit of a trick, with a very elegant answer, but he was not oversimplifying anything. That's the difference between what Jesus was offering, which was something that was integrated, and what we are trying to do so often in our world today when we try to cram complex layered questions into one-dimensional sound bites that almost always reflect what we've already figured out about a given situation where we have to uh, cut away piece, critical pieces of information for it to fit our preferred view of whatever situation that might be. And then we act from that place. That's, that's not elegance. If we have to cut away part of a problem in order to make it fit a box, that's just editing. If, though, we have a teaching that can both distill the great wisdom while containing all of it, then we have something with great potency. We have something that can really change our hearts and prepare us to change the world. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with your mind. Here Jesus quotes the Shema, which is the centerpiece of the Jewish relationship with Yahweh. Love was at the very center of it. What is, what is G Bishop Curry's perfect and wonderfully elegant phrase? If it's not about love, it's not about God. That is an elegant phrase right there because it distills all of it down to one phrase, a plumb line that I can hold up to pretty much everything I do. Is this about love? Yes, no. If it's not, I can still do it, but I can't say that, that God is sending me to do it. can no longer go down that path. I can do it, but I shouldn't do it. should note that. Love God with every part of your being. Your heart, where your passions lie. Your mind, where we have reason and interpretation and discernment and with your soul, with your soul, with this life force that marks us as bearers of the image of God. We don't talk about soul much, do we? I mean, it's kind of this squishy thing, and we don't really name it for, for what Jesus might have been talking about. Where is this soul, and, and how does it help us to love God? Well, you might be thinking, as I grew up thinking, that the soul was right about here, 
right kind of around the heart where we feel things really deeply. Uh, well, John O'Donohue uh, has written, I know we've talked about that here, that in the Celtic imagination, the soul is not somewhere in, in a box inside of us. The, soul, the body is in the soul. And that there is this, this force, energy force, that's Star Wars, uh, this energy field around us, so to speak, that is who we are and that is our connection to God and that holds us and supports us and can even heal us. And if you want to have fun with it, which I always do, um, the, the character, the image that always comes to mind for me is um, Pigpen from Peanuts, right, who has this sort of kinetic dust cloud kind of popping around him at all times. Well, well, that's kind of how I like to think of the soul, because it's not one thing at any one time. It's always kind of moving. It's always animated, but it still holds us. And it's still, imagine yourself, you are not your body, you are not even your name, you are this soul that God has created and put into this world to live and to love and to recognize and lift up other souls all around you. Because if you see with these eyes, your pig pen eyes, if you will, you start looking around, you look in the mirror, you see that, but you also start looking around. And there's all of these wonderful kinetic presences around each and every one of those around you. And you realize we are not just people, we are souls gathered together. And that we encounter others in the world, we are encountering other souls. And suddenly, how we are supposed to love God looks a little bit different because we are not alone in this world, but rather we see that we are a collection of souls, and we cannot, we cannot love God without also recognizing who our neighbors are and what wonderful divine presence surrounds each and every one of them. And now you have seen your neighbors for who they are. Each the same kind of vessel for the divine that you are. Each not just a person or a body, but a precious soul, divinely created and infinitely beloved of God. The second commandment is like the first, meaning. Jesus said it is as important as the Shema. It's a reflection of how we embody and enact that wholehearted love. Love your neighbor as yourself, one soul loving another. Love your neighbor, love yourself. Those two go together and they need each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. That sure takes a lot of things off the table, doesn't it? Greed is out. Exceptionalism is out. Manipulation is out. Condescension and contempt are out. Racism is out. Triangulation is out. Exploitation is out. Violence is out. Scapegoating is out. Classism is out. Oh, I could go on. We all know that our world is filled with these things. 
But can you imagine a commandment or a pair of them that with the wave of a hand could make all of these painful realities disappear when we suddenly see our neighbor for who they are? The answer is yes, we can. But there is one last thing to know. Simple and elegant doesn't mean easy. There's a difference between oversimplifying something and being elegant. It takes a lot of work to be simple, to, to get to simple. Steve Jobs once said that you have to work hard to get your thinking clean to make it simple. This wasn't replacing the tradition for Jesus. It was an illumination of it. It took the wholehearted love that was the very essence of the Shema and opened it to the whole world, which, by the way, was the whole point of the tradition all along. But that had gotten lost. This kind of love is not easy and it is not convenient, but it is wholehearted and courageous. It is sacrificial and joyful. It is generative and beautiful, but it will take us far away from our places of familiarity and comfort. This love can transform our world, but first, it must change our whole lives. Amen.